think I've never heard about the word bougie before. Have you? Oh yeah. <laughs> I've I use never it used it. <laughs> Me neither. What does it mean, Tom? Um, oh God. I mean, we could get into a bit of politics with this. Um, without going into the kind of origin of the, the word itself, um, it kind of means, I think of it to mean things that are sort of upscale, um, a bit sort of show-offy, mm. uh, like middle class. Um, oh, there's so must middle be class, but show-offy? Show-offy, expensive, <laughs> unnecessarily expensive. Um, middle class, but wannabe. Yeah, <laughs> wannabe, kind of aspirational, but very often, very often people being uh, parting with, with with a lot of money for to try and kind of reach for some status i'm probably doing a terrible job of explaining what it means but i use it a lot very often to to apologize for my interests <laughs> <laughs> things like you know fancy coffee and nice like hipster clothing brands and um you know sometimes it's a little apologetic but my friends who know me know that they either describe some of my pursuits or I'm apologizing profusely for being interested in things that might come across as a little bougie. Brighton is bougie central, which I, where, where I live, so. <laughs> I've never at least like realized that this is a word until I dove into the world of Aesop. Okay. Oh, How, sorry, what did Aesop. you see it? What was your definition? Do, do I, does it sound like I've described it accurately? I should say it's it's early for me here so i'm not my brain's not quite engaged enough yet so yeah alan what did you what did you come across as un your understanding of bougie yeah just it's it, it like even like some words if you just hear, hear them in context and just the way they sound they made me feel like oh it's something rich and i don't know like i just wanted to say the same thing it's like yeah. even the word like how the word sounds bougie. already makes you <laughs> know what it kind of means even yeah. without knowing <laughs> yeah the way you say it yeah totally um i don't know if it comes from like the bourgeoisie like um mm. kind of thing which obviously a lot of people um it's kind of like quite well i'm not going to get into the political side of it the the origins that's not i think that's, that's where, kind of I think that's where it why are we from. talking about this word why are we talking about bougie because yeah go for it alan Actually, you can go for it, but it's. I think it's kind of the synonymous for the company we're going to cover today. And the correct pronunciation, that's another thing I learned in this research, is ESOP, not ASAP, as I've been calling it ever since I learned about it. But yeah, it's ESOP. And uh, what we're going to do today is we're going to tear down a darling of a design community. So this is our so-called business design teardown episode. So we have a look at the product service or a company that design community generally likes and ESOP is definitely in that in that space and then we look at the business side of things you know is this just a fancy design or is it fancy business as well all right it's fancy yeah definitely. <laughs> it's definitely fancy um so if anyone hasn't heard of Aesop the brand before you might be familiar with Aesop's fables which is where the name comes from uh, which we'll touch on in a bit um, we said this in the last episode where we were talking about Herman Miller a brand that people might not be immediately familiar with I would recommend pausing this podcast have a very very quick google um, look at the website quick image search and I think you will very quickly 
understand what a role design plays in this business attention to detail quality and bouginess um, <laughs> so just to give yourself a kind of visual feeling for um, why we've picked ESOP and just to bring it to life a little bit probably worth a very quick look if you're not familiar um, but yes ESOP not ASOP um, I think I put them when we were first brainstorming brands for these teardowns I, I put this in there and it felt a little bit left field a bit of a um, kind of odd potential choice a skincare brand and I have to confess not a brand that I've really I have purchased their products once but not a brand that I have some mad sort of uh, obsession with from a consumer perspective but from a design and brand perspective especially after researching this episode becoming increasingly obsessed with um, <laughs> if you are a designer who thinks that Apple are the pinnacle of fastidiousness and quality and cult-like attention to detail mm. hold my beer is what Aesop is saying to you because it is some next level stuff um, when it comes to that kind of that that encapsulating that in their brand so fascinating from a design perspective from a strategy perspective and we are gonna dive deep into it today um might be worth starting off with your first kind of perceptions of the brand first times maybe experiencing the brand um i'll come i'll go last on this one but um alan let's let's start with you um use much of their stuff been to the stores when did yeah, you first learn um, about esop never going to forget march 9th <laughs> i'm joking <laughs> no but i do remember where i was when i first learned about it um i actually probably remember the first two three encounters so the first encounter was me still working at ido and flying over to the sf the san francisco office and uh, me going to the toilet <laughs> and what they had there was uh yeah their famous super famous and probably like their most important product which is the hand soap and i mean first of all you you like you like the packaging it looks different from other hand soaps but when you use it you like you get the sense that oh it's different and just the way also your hands really nicely smell afterwards i was like whoa okay that's interesting then i put this aside you know like you don't have the context of the brand and i never thought thought about it until i maybe it was even the same trip when my um um my boss actually told me, oh, I need to buy a gift, something for my wife. And we were, I think, at the airport. And he picked up Aesop, of course. And there was another connection to me, like, oh, okay. So tell me more. Why did you choose that? And then you start, like, building this picture. Okay, it looks... And then you look it up and you see the price point and you think to yourself, oh, I'm never going to buy this. But then my opportunity to buy it was when I stated my friend's place for a week in Berlin and uh, I wanted to say thank you somehow and very close to his apartment was uh, Aesop store I was like oh and Franz know this my my rule for good uh for good gifts is buying a like a, a thing within the category of products that you would ne never buy yourself okay you know like so that. hands up usually costs like I don't know two to five bucks and you don't buy a 30 40 dollar hands up for yourself but as a gift it's perfect mm. so i was like okay i'm gonna do this 
obviously when you come in you get the whole shebang like experiencing the brand and so on i'm not going to go into that but um i know that you know that's where i also i think built this let's say deeper relationship with the brand in the retail store yeah the retail stuff is next level uh, we will get that into that in a in a sec i mean you were describing i'm sure when they're brainstorming the kind of experience that someone goes on uh to get their esop thing you know you flying probably business class alan i'd assume <laughs> over to san francisco for a meeting and you know all this i mean you, you're probably up on there somewhere you are you are like the archetype there's a picture of alan up there um franz i you know getting to know franz increasingly i i don't imagine that's been his uh, experience so far he's a man who keeps it real um franz what, what about you yeah. what, what's been the experience with esop i don't know protesting outside this door no. or... you know how i learned about esop go on you putting it on our podcast list ah, <laughs> and i was working. like what is this <laughs> it's a recurring theme That's now, been happening a lot. <laughs> okay so for everybody listening to this podcast feeling like i feel kind of out of place because i don't know any of this what people what these people talk about hey you're me like i didn't know about the eames chair i didn't know about Aesop. and then i was like okay i obviously was not gonna buy an eames chair for our last episode but i was like okay this is a soap and yes it's expensive so i was debating with myself and i was like yeah maybe i should buy one just for the prep of this podcast and i had this chat with alan and he was like yeah go for it let's just do it it's really nice it feels great and it makes sense for the podcast so i went on their website i created an account i was like okay yeah i can do 35 bucks for a hand soap i was this close to buying it when they put 10 euros shipping fee on it what? and then i was like no <laughs> and i abandoned my cart oh, so that's my story with Esop. i was oh. so close to buying it and i decided not to because i mean i was i was able to convince myself to spend 35 bucks but then 10 euros for shipping no. that's too much isn't it that's me welcome oh, to france and worlds <laughs> well france i think we should all take a leaf out of your book a bit more um i should i should I, I mean, I'm disappointed that you did not make the journey from Salzburg <laughs> to Vienna to go to the store. Um, I don't know. The train journey maybe costs less than 10 euros, um, but they do have a store in Vienna that looks beautiful, I have to say. And that is going to be a theme that we, we get mm. into. So no, no, no soap for you, Franz. Nope. Oh, Nothing. Keeping it real. Um, but I yeah, say, I still learned a lot in the last few days. So good stuff also i mean, not knowing anything about it before so and i don't want to get mischaracterized as someone who only uh, is interested in these like high-end brands because let me just say cannot justify the cost of most of them but i think in all seriousness they both of the particularly esop demonstrate that you can go high-end you can have the incredible attention to detail and they're then if you stick to that lane and have absolute dedication to it. There is an audience. There is a big opportunity for revenue there. This is not a niche brand. And I think regardless of whether you're interested in buying the product, you might think it's ridiculously expensive, and most people do, myself included. There is an, an enormous amount to learn um, from how they do things, and that's what we're all about. Um, I didn't, didn't want people to think that my house is full of Herman Miller chairs and um, it's so it is not. <laughs> um, 
I think that's another ar archetype they have, Tom. It's like people who want in their lives, but they're just by like a product here and there. Yeah, yeah. Or you, you know, it's aspirational. You can you know you can take yeah. take things from it um, without completely kind of getting bought up in in the brands. My my first experience of Aesop was um, actually the store opening in the town where I live. Um, so they have this interesting strategy where when they're trying to decide where to open a store, they actually take over a few storefronts in the area um, and they will kind of see how the community engages with them in those different areas, um, understand whether they're feeling welcomed, what the local kind of scene is like. Um, and I do want to dive into the, the stores bit a little more uh, later. And they had done that. They had uh, taken over an area um, in the North Lane area of Brighton um, and had like the store branding up ready to open and I was like oh that's interesting and saw the store kind of being built out and I assumed it was a bookshop I think the Aesop thing I was familiar with Aesop's fables from a child in school and things like that and just the aesthetic felt like um, we have a brand over here called Waterstones um, like a slightly more high-end sort of bookstore and I was like oh brilliant like that would be very cool and then when it opened I was like ah, not what I expected at all uh and yeah ended up wandering in there and having a little nose around and sort of was just blown away by the experience um which we'll we'll get into a little more um i have bought one uh aesop product in in my time i, I won't be rushing back uh based on uh, how it how it impacted my skin <laughs> um but yeah that was my my first experience was the in-store one which is really central to to um to the brand for sure so what did they do tom so they opened four stores and they just stick to one no, or they, they, they don't open like four posters? they like they put up like posters and branding oh, and like window uh uh coverings in a few yeah. locations they, they've done this a few times apparently um in brighton they i had only been familiar with the the one store that i kind of walked past but it really the brand just piqued my interest i mean the typography, uh, the name and everything. It was really curious. Um, mm. So, yeah. And the location is fascinating. Um, but we're going to get onto that in a moment. Um, but, yeah, Alan, if you, you before we started recording, you had a, a bottle out of, out, of, out of shot. Like, let's have a look. What have, you, what have you got there? So, first of all, this is a gift to me. <laughs> <laughs> so, this seems to be a recurring theme, yeah. So yeah, it's not something you buy for yourself, but yeah, we got it as a gift. And the funny story is now we're keeping it, like it's it's being in the shelf and we're waiting to move to, we're just uh, moving to a new house. So we're gonna use it there. Right. <laughs> I was just talking to my wife, like, is this something that we should put in the guest's bathroom or the, the main <laughs> one? And the funny thing is it, it, like that's also their stories. Like it's a guest's bathroom thingy right. to put in, but yeah um here it is so you want to talk about it ah um, what is it called resurrection something resurrection are aromati aromatized hand wash and then there's always the french one underneath it yeah the uh, french uh text as well mm, i can smell it through the camera yeah, what's, the, what's the quote on the on the bottle oh yeah there's normally some sort of inspirational poet quote or something is it a... um 
William Morris quote, maybe. I don't find it. It says a superior cleansing gel for hardworking hands. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> I, don't, I don't think that's uh, <laughs> sound like a famous, famous quote. We'll come back no. to that. Yeah, <laughs> we'll let Alan. No, really, there is no quote on the bottle. Um, I don't see it. Maybe no? it's on the inside maybe label when you finish it. Uh, little maybe delighter. Maybe it's in this pouch. Oh, fancy pouch as well. If you're if you're listening it's to always. this, um, Alan's got a nice canvas bag. That, that oh, there's an in. invoice. <laughs> an invoice. Great to think. <laughs> there that, is that's a receipt. Gone as a business expense through DMBA, I assume. Oh, it was a gift to us. Oh, yeah, so... it was a gift. They've left yeah. the invoice in there. Interesting. Um, in, in case we want to switch it. So you can switch it back. They just want you cash to know how, how, how much they spent <laughs> on you. <laughs> in case you want to cash it out. <laughs> yeah, cash it. Yeah, put it on eBay. Um, so a little bit of background to ESOP. And we, we're going to kind of cover a few of their, their strategic moves a bit later. So founded in 1987 in Melbourne um, by a chap called Dennis Perfetis. Um, and he started off as a hairdresser and he had been experimenting with combining like high-end um, salon products with essential oils uh, for a long time that had kind of become his thing in the Melbourne sort of, I guess, hairdressing scene. He was famous for it and was very experimental in that uh, in that piece. And that that really continues to tie into their philosophy of very much about like high quality natural ingredients but not but do appreciate that there is a combination to be made between human made maybe more chemically based uh, ingredients and the natural and that's continued to be a part of uh, how they do things um so yeah he started out doing that in salon uh, and was increasingly motivated by his frustrations with existing beauty products that kind of lacked a sort of genuine authenticity uh, they thought was hidden away um, cleverly marketed but probably in quite a deceptive way and really wanted to start a brand that um, was all about authenticity quality at, at with no expense spared um, and certainly achieved that um, the brand name as we already said Aesop um, is uh, inspired by the Greek storyteller, and you, even if you don't know Aesop, you'll know some of Aesop's fables. I think the is it the the tortoise and the hare is like the famous one of the famous Aesop's fables, like slow and steady wins, wins the race. Um, there are others uh, out there, but it was a kind of a bit of mockery of the kind of highfalutin claims that um, sort of modern uh, beauty brands were making. Um, I'm not clever enough to really understand the philosophy around that, I'll be honest, but I take their word for it. <laughs> um, so yeah, the, the kind of product philosophy of fusion of like traditional botanical wisdom and this modern science has prevailed throughout uh, and really comes through in all of their storytelling and just looking on the back of the bottle. You know, there'll be things you absolutely recognize in there uh, and things that you're a bit like, don't know. Um, so yeah, in summary, this kind of they've been on this big journey of blending art, science, and nature in beauty, and have gone from being this sort of upstart indie brand to an absolute enormous player, which is incredible given price point, the fact that strategically they position themselves so far away from that like mainstream beauty piece, and we will get into that, but a real case study in differentiation strategy uh, and how important it is to kind of stay in your lane uh, 
if you want to have like the kind of impacts they've had. Um, so unless anyone's got anything else to add about the initial background, because I know we will no doubt talk more about some of the stages uh, in the growth of ESOP. I was going to... Did you mention the year when it was founded? 1987. Exactly. Uh, it's important to also know that this is not a new brand. No. Yeah. It's just not super old, but it's like already, you know, what is that? 30 plus years. Yeah. 34 yeah. years. Yeah. Getting towards middle age. Um. <laughs> <laughs> um. Has been a so, quite yes. a while since it is around, right? And... Um, the founding story itself, I think it is super interesting, right? So you have this huge company now that was founded out of a person's hair salon. So it was basically a saloon which was also selling products for a pretty long time, right? Um, and that was, I think that's an, I would say, also, I mean, the roots, we, ju we just talked about the roots uh, of coming from a hairdresser, of being born in Melbourne, of being, um, yeah, quite small. Um, but the root in itself of this company, I would also say, is like the focus on the, the product, right? Mm. So they did start out with hair care products. They ventured into hand care, body care, skin care. I think now it's also mouthwash and post-poo drops, something oh, like yeah. this. So, so do those, mm, do they? They yeah. do. Okay, now I'm interested. <laughs> <laughs> Apparently work. I don't know. As I said, haven't bought any. But um, yeah, also this, um, I would say this product focus and paired with this name of Aesop is really interesting because it, it reflects just this product um, or how these products feel, right? The focus on storytelling, on kind of wisdom. We're doing something that is natural, but it's also science. It's kind of timeless. We focus on quality. We focus on design. We don't focus on something that's, let's say, really based on trend. So this is a real, real deep product focus. And as you said, the product focus is not all natural, right? There, there is, it's not only, um, let's say plant, it's science, science and plants together, essential oils, laboratory made ingredients, um, always in the highest quality. And the interesting thing is that also their packaging, when you see it when you have a look at it it conveys quality right it conveys i don't know you don't look at this packaging and it says hair wash it mm. also doesn't say anything else it just says hmm it looks a little bit like from a pharmacy it looks like somebody yes. made it by hand it mm. looks like craft it looks like quality right so no distractions only clean brown bottles. If you have video on, then you have seen the um, bottle that Alan actually also put into the camera or you just have a quick Google. Basically everything is dark brown with these white and black labels, Helvetica font. Like you look at their website and you're like, <clears throat> has somebody forgotten? No, actually it fits really, really well. Okay, so 
after a while you really get it. Um, and also these great quotes, right? Again, they're going into this intellectual um, corner or niche that is kind of, yeah, all encompassing this brand. Even though I thought there was a quote on every single bottle, but now we learned that there is none on no. your head wash. But like, speaking uh, of quotes about the bottle, did you see what the CEO of uh, <laughs> the CEO of Aesop has said about the the packaging? He's got some great quotes. I don't know if I've seen this one though. Oh, but the church you've seen this. So he talked about them as um, ugly brown glass jars, ugly ducklings, and on a set of shelves, our products didn't really do anything. Which is like, wow, okay, that's not how I perceive these uh, packages like this, these bottles at all. But his point was more like, hey, if we are trying to sell our product in the same space as all the other um, companies are, um, then it like looks bland, you know? Yeah. But we'll come <clears> later <throat> why, how retail stores play into that. But I was just surprised that, you know, the CEO of your company is saying ugly brown glass jars. Yeah. <laughs> That is, uh, that is unexpected. I have not heard no. that quote, I have to say. And Actually, um, let's right away talk about this. Or Tom, did you want to say something? Uh, no, in a moment, I'm going to get into some of the kind of design-focused um, reasons that um, ASAP are so interesting. But yeah, go for it. Um, yeah, I mean, this it's an interesting thing because um, your CEO says, well, this is kind of an ugly duckling. And he, or this packaging is an ugly duckling, and he actually has a pretty good point about it because he talks about this when he told the story of their, let's say, biggest strategic moves, which was from product-centered to, um, to retail-centered, right? So I'm not saying that Aesop has moved away from being product-centered in a way because they are still, right? It's still all about the product, all about quality. Uh, they still convey this uh, sense of premium quality. Um, but from a business perspective, from a business model and strategy perspective, they have made a big move from product-centered or let's say not in, not only from pro, not really from product centered but into retail centered cuz mm. even though this is now a huge brand um, it grew really really slow until the year of 2003 so 2003 they had like 3 million in revenue so this is like 16 years in business and you are making 3 million in revenue so if this would be a vc backed business you would it would be gone. It'd be out. Yeah, it would be out. Like, oh, this doesn't work. Bye. I think it's another reason to admire this organization is yeah. I think we will understand the shortcomings of VC-backed approach to scaling businesses in a non-sustainable way and just showing, yeah, might need some patience, um, <laughs> but this is, this is a real poster child for um, slow, steady, wins the race oh my god we've gone back to Aesop's fable <laughs> very nice Tom very nice exactly so let's talk about this retail focus right so big strategic move um, and coming from a very logical realization that 
you need to have a look at who you're competing with and where you're competing. So they realized that until 2003, they sold primarily in department stores, right? And they realized that their product didn't really match how they sold it and this business model because their position in department stores or their positioning in department stores was way inferior to their competitors like for example l'oreal or um yeah all the other brands that you would find there um because they just didn't stand out right the way these companies these other companies basically operated was they had these department stores as the main channel this is a basically a push model you would have huge advertising celebrity endorsement of um of your brands you would push these people in the department stores and then they would see your flashy um your flashy um, your flashy packaging and um yeah you would stand out but that's what Aesop didn't do right so it's basically like the ugly ducklings that stand in between uh, nice bottles of big brands and then it doesn't do anything on the shelves that's what he said right so what Aesop basically found out is that customers didn't really get their brand so when you see this bottle among other bottles and among other brands it doesn't do anything with you and this made them basically decide to go into this big um, move of having their own source. And that's when they basically moved from this product-centric business to a retail-centric business. Um, and they opened their own stores. So they would have full control of their experience and of the shoppers. And now maybe um, tell us again of your experience of, the, of these shops. Alan, how was the um, Berlin shop that you visited? Um, it's nice. <laughs> I mean, uh, I don't want to go too much into detail because I think Thomas is going to cover that. But yeah, it feels very special. Uh, you can see right away that it's uh, it's a different kind of store. Maybe if you don't analyze and go into uh, analysis mode, you don't know what exactly is happening, but it just feels like, oh, yeah, it's different. Also, because like every product that they have basically looks the same. It's just a different size of the bottle or material of the bottle or different type of packaging. But it's all like, it's really like coming into a bookstore with cosmetics. And um, it just right away, like the lighting is different and all of these things. But I'll let Tom go because I think Tom has prepared something about mm -hmm. this. No, no I, th I think it's a really good. Um, I think this is an important one to focus on particularly you know it's one of the many reasons i think designers should take an interest in esop is this part of the experience but I, I really think we should we should go a little deeper as a group onto it now because it is so fascinating um my own experience though of the esop saw like i said the opening of the brighton one and um i was i was at a point a few years ago i mean this is you know first world problem um my my skin was like like mega dry like having real issues with it i tried a whole bunch of like cheaper um skincare things and i was like uh i mean i'm not gonna do, drop any expletives because i don't want us to have to put this as an explicit episode again but um i was like damn it i'm just gonna oh, you know i'm gonna go to the other end of the spectrum um uh you know 
let's 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 see what this ESOP can offer. I had no idea how expensive it was when I walked in there, um, <laughs> but I thought, well, I've heard that they have experts in store. They can take a look and really give me some attention to detail. A bit like going to a dermatologist or something. Um, so I, I went in there with a real need. It wasn't just out of curiosity. I was like, damn, I'm like sick of this, this dry skin. And having been around people who had gone into like department school skincare places, and I'm sure we've all had the sort of pushy sales experience before, not just when it comes to cosmetics or, or aftershave or whatever. It was an absolute masterclass in sort of elegant hosting um, of really i mean subsequently i've learned that there's a real incredible kind of training um and almost slight scripting to to how it's done but it feels so elegantly done that you don't realize it's happening um so i was i saw that firsthand and it blew me away i was made to feel very comfortable as a sort of lanky out of place um dude <laughs> with with dry skin um going into this store but the the kind of the line of questioning around my my needs and um, like budget and openness to trying different products was was really um, elegantly done um, and yeah they um, were saying that there's a big part of skincare and this this is a quote actually skincare is a physical experience um, this is from their architectural manager Denise Neary. People want to smell, touch, and feel the products when they're trying something new. And Franz, you were going to buy yours online. You would have been missing out on an enormous part of the experience of actually buying this product and making sure it was the, the right one for you. So all of the stores have like big, um, like big sinks in there, lots of nice towels. It's, it's like a spa experience going in there. And the person who was serving me was kind of talking me through the range, let, let, let me try out a whole bunch of the products, kind of talking to me about the ingredients and just gave me a real confidence that they un I, was, I was buying quality, buying from someone who understood um, my needs really well. And it, was, it didn't feel pushy at all. Um, nice. And it was, it was very different, unexpected. Tell you what was unexpected as well, how damn expensive it was. But um, <laughs> at the time, you I was said like, in the beginning. I wasn't sure how expensive it was when I came in. You definitely knew how expensive it was when you went yeah. out, right? Yeah. Of the store. And I was, I, I was sort of, because they come in these tiny little bottles. So I, I ended up um, walking away with these like three products that you used one after another. I'm sure people out there would go like, yeah, like apparently <laughs> if you have a good skin in the area team, you have like several things that you do. Um, but they were quite small, but they're like one of them was like dispensed with a pipette. So they were like, this is going to last you like six months. And I was like, you know what, for the price I'm paying, if this is going to last a long time and it's going to make my skin feel better and not be embarrassed by how dry my skin was, then fine, like, give it a go. Um, long story short, it did not make my skin any better. <laughs> it made it much worse. <laughs> so, sorry, Aesop. It dried the hell out of my skin. Um, so now we know why it's called Aesop, because they sell you on the story. Oh, yes. And we will definitely touch on that uh, storytelling. So yeah, that was my experience um, of the just on this on the store clerks. So I found an interview with one of their um, executives uh, in a store, and uh, he talked about the fact that the way they train their store clerks is that they are able not just talk about the products. 
which is what every company thinks about. But Aesop, and that's why it's such a strong brand, teaches them to talk about the architecture of mm. the store. So they knew they know who the architects are. They know the decisions that went into the store design. They can't talk about the city, so they're usually locals and can't talk about the city itself. And that's really important part of the brand as well. It's like making you feel like they fit into this city and into this community. Yeah. And I think when I was there in Berlin, they even gave me some tea. You know, mm. like they mm. they yeah they do want some you a tea drink. and yeah <laughs> yeah yeah. And then the way the way that like when they make you test out your the products, it's just it's there's a whole routine. Like hey, there is obviously a um, how do you call that water bassinet or what's that thing? Like a sink, a big sink. Sink exactly. Thank you very much. Sink and you I obviously use the. Basket. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. I just tried to. Sink. It's too simple, spot. right? I'm going to start is not a calling, calling it a water basket from now on. I shouldn't mock you, but that is such a wonderful description. <laughs> it's like a non-native trying to create a new yeah, word. Yeah, I won't try and attempt the equivalent in Slovenian. Yeah. That's how German, German works, by the way. I just put together words. Thing. Yeah, <laughs> it's called waschbecken, which means washing basket. Oh, exactly. Okay. Well, <laughs> fine. <laughs> I live thirty kilometers from Germany, so that's why uh, from Austria, so that's why I probably am influenced. But um, yeah, so the way this experience feels like you try the hand soap, and then it's not you who take the towel, but no, the store clerk takes your hand, puts it into a towel, takes puts the, the rest of the towel around it, and it's like gently rubs it your hand, and like it's. It's slightly uncomfortable, but it's also like, wow. But isn't it yeah. well executed? That could be it a, is. that could it be is. an extremely creepy experience yes. if you're not expecting yeah. it, right? Yeah. But it is these people are trained so well. Um, yes. you know, everyone bangs on about how great the Apple Store experience is. I find it really annoying. I find the Apple Store really, really annoying. Like I do my best to avoid the people. Sorry if you're listening and you're an Apple Store employee. Um, I blame your training. It's too much. It's certainly in in England, it feels over enthusiastic, over exuberant, and like people aren't reading the room or the customer terribly well. But the the, the I've only had one experience in ESOP, but I think from what I've read and understood and speaking to other people, there is a an incredibly artful reading of the sales situation mm. and an adaptation of language behavior body language um that a lot of you know just blows things like apple store out of the water yeah that's yeah. why i think it's so interesting for designers like if you think like apple apple store is like the pinnacle of great customer experience physical customer experience like yeah. I, I think that this takes it to a, an absolute another level and that's the like that's now what we are describing is now the customer-centered part of their strategic shift to retail focus, right? So what they wanted to do is make you talk for 15 minutes about your experience of this store. And now they have 289 stores in 29 countries. So this is what the shift from product focus to retail focus means. And there is only two things that are exactly the same, not exactly the same, but that exist in every um, in every 
uh, store, which is their product. Water baskets, right? And, and the water <laughs> basket, <laughs> the, the sink, exactly. So every store is basically centered around the sink. There is always, obviously, their products. But apart from this, every single store is different. So everything starts, as um, Tom said in the very beginning, with the location. It's really carefully picking a neighborhood that is just right. Not too busy, but busy enough. Not too fancy, but fancy enough. Basically, if you know the city and you hear where Aesop opens their store, you say, yeah, I know where that is. And yeah, that's, that's actually really cool. And they yeah, sorry, see I'll... themselves. Sorry, go on. <laughs> no, no, carry on. Carry on. I'll come back to my point. <laughs> so they see themselves as actually bringing life to the part of the city that they open the store in. So it almost, when you read about how they pick their location, it almost sounds like they're looking for a place to live mm. for their brand, right? In every single city, it's almost like you as a person would find a flat in an area that you find comfortable. Like you yeah. feel at home there. And that's kind of how they start picking their location. And that's only step one of this process, right? Finding just, your right location. Just on the location part, you said, I, this is a really wonderful analogy, Franz. Like it's the same way that you would look for an apartment. Because one of the things that they talk in their documents is that they think about the neighbors. Yeah. So who will the neighbors be of this store? And this is literally other stores, but also like literal neighbors. And I think this is an interesting analogy of like how to take this analysis of where to open a store to the next level. I think what's what's fascinating about that is you might on an on a if you looked at Aesop the brand without diving deeper into this philosophy that Franz has just been um, telling us about about wanting to be neighborly and find the right vibe to fit into. Like if if before I understood Aesop more. And you said to me, where would they open a store in Brighton? It would not be where it is. No way. Like there's there's a like slightly more upmarket area of Brighton and Hove. Like Hove is a little bit more upmarket, but also there are areas like in the lanes where I would expect Aesop to be. When I think about the brands that are around there, there's a lot of high-end boutique fashion brands, things like that. The Aesop store in Brighton is next to a chip shop. Um, there is literally the waft of frying fish and vegetable oil as you are standing outside the store um it is around the corner from like a crystal healing shop uh and a falafel joint like but it works it fits in it is it, it and it is in, it is incredible that they decided that that is the place they want to be but i admire it like it's it's absolutely not where you would expect a high-end skincare brand to be and so it took me by surprise and again i think that's what like so fascinating this process of, of deciding yeah that's the place and they're still there yeah. years on so first step neighborhood right yeah then second step is architecture i think alan you mentioned it already that every single store is different yes every store is an asap store yes every store only sells asap products <laughs> but every store is different but it's not only different in terms of different colors or different i don't know um different orders of the of the interior it's actually designed especially for this city and especially for this neighborhood so it's always inspired by city and the history of the city 
it's also inspired by the neighborhood and the building itself. So every store basically has a theme and they have own design teams, but they also work together with very, very famous designers like architects, interior designers. For example, the one, I mean, I'm not super informed about architects and architectural landscape, but when I just read that the store in Oslo was designed by the same architect that also designed the opera in Oslo and the 9-11 memorial in New York and the library in Alexandria, I was like, that's an investment. Like that's a real investment, right? A literal money investment. You are hiring a top-notch architect that usually designs landmarks for communities and you're hiring them to design your and now i'm on purpose putting it like down your soap store right Mm. so that's a huge trade-off that's a huge investment and it really really pays off because as you said yes you have this similar experience like there is a sink there is products there is great service there is always curated music there is always people who are really really well trained but your experience what you see and what you actually get from a store will always be different in the different cities and i find it super interesting that this concept works for both locals and travelers right so as a local or let's start with the traveler. As a traveler, you're like, okay, this fits in here, right? That kind of suits where I am. But the local will even understand it better because they will kind of get the sense of, I didn't expect um, this store to be here, like you said in Brighton, right? But somehow it kind of works because this neighborhood gives me this sense of being. So I find this super, super interesting. I very bold move when you think of it from an investment perspective uh, because obviously um, finding one shop fitter that fits your 280 something stores is a completely different ballpark than finding a local architect them having a concept that's geared towards history of the city of the neighborhood of the building and then also crafting all the interior because obviously this unique interior design is not something that you buy off the shelf um so that's crazy it is isn't it like how much cheaper would it be for them to just roll out the same floor plan style of shelving sinks all of that uniform much cheaper and that's what usually brands do you know like you hire an agency that helps you create a modular scalable uh affordable design that works across different continents different cities different regions you know like give me the and this results in a generic beautiful yet generic type of uh, store design um and it's a huge trade-off here and it's also interesting because what do you want to get from a brand recognizability right Mm. so you want actually you want your so that's also very counterintuitive because you want to kind of feel at home in a store, right? So I don't know, and that's the, let's say, counter, the counter argument, but I usually go to one kind of supermarket because somehow it's still structured the same way, even if it's in a different city. 
So you kind of want this recognizability from a, okay, I know how to shop there, but you also want the recognizability from a visual perspective, right? Your shop is your billboard. Um, but here it's actually completely the other way around. Yes, you have brown bottles, obviously recognizable. Yes, you have the logo, but just in general, the stores, and you can have a look at the stores, look completely different in every other city. And the last Google tip I'll give you, website tip I'll give you, and I guess you have uh, come around this website, Taxonomy of Design. Did you I see haven't. it? No, no, I haven't. No. Ashamed, ashamed to, to admit. Taxonomy like of Design.com. Um, so I'm not going to explain what it is. I'm just going to quote. Taxonomy of Design is a digital compendium of our signature stores, which pays tribute uh, to the creative process, materials, and features that, that distinguish ASAP spaces and to the designers and architects with whom we collaborate. I'm going to be off. So that's that. an internal love letter in form of a website that's to crazy. their own store design. Yeah. Incredible. Okay. That is next level. It is. And I can't think of a single brand at this scale that does anything like this. It's incredibly unique. I, d I don't think it would work so well if the um, quality of architecture wasn't quite so high end. Mm. I mean, all of these stores would not look out of place in a middle spread of Architecture Digest. They are incredible. Absolute neck breakers. If you're walking down High Street and you see an ESOP store, it's like, <laughs> right, need to get... I can understand how if you're interested in design and you know there's an ESOP store in the city you're in, you go and hunt it down. Like, you're going to yeah. want to compare it. Like, they are yeah. so different, um, but all to an incredible level. Mm. Like, Fran, Fran, I was sent Franz a message yesterday saying I'm really... Well, I, I, the Brighton store is quite nice. It kind of um, it borrows on the sort of deep blue, sort of green oxidized railings that we have along the seafront and the, the seashore. But then compare it to the Vienna one, which is like the fanciest cocktail bar you've ever seen in your life, like complete opposite ends of the spectrum, but recognizably Aesop. Um, I, I know, yeah. And that is such an incredibly hard balance to get right. And um, speaks volumes to the, the being able to have consistency without being completely locked into something like a design system i think mm. if a lot of modern digital designers were left to do no offense uh like store design they go they take the apple route you know modular easy to roll out design system very very recognizable um, yeah. and, I, and I think we've over-fetishized design systems, particularly in digital. I think it takes away a lot of creative freedom, particularly early in your brand story. And I think ESOP just shows that you, you can have an incredible consistency and recognizability, but also really lean into creativity um, and deliver like exceptional experience without being samey. I think it's now we have to go into business because now these two things become so important because what you're talking about Tom now is like the reason this works so well for ESOP is exactly the reason why it doesn't work for almost any other brand yeah. and it's also because of the business reasons because I'll talk a little bit later about the margins that ESOP has in their products but the fact that it has huge margins just enables them to invest in things like that so if you work for a up-and-coming startup that's not in the premium space, um, then you probably do, can't do this. So I think you, there is a place 
and time for this. And in most of the cases, it's not the time and place for this, but it's important to recognize when. So what I'm now just trying to say to, to anyone listening is like, not this isn't now a story of, oh, let's take ESOP and now let's apply this to everything else because this is going to be an amazing experience. But there is also very strong business reasons why this works for ESOP. And I think Franz touched upon this switch from product-centric to retail-centric strategy that around 2000 and what was that? Three. Two? Three company made. Did you actually finish your numbers? You didn't, right? So the revenue from 2002 and how it grew after the strategy switch? Mm, gonna get there. You're gonna get there. Okay. <laughs> yeah, because I think we talk a lot about the service design and yeah. the space design right now. And I think that's just... I think the reason ESA was able to create 300 of these stores is because it has a good strategy and business model behind it. It's not just yeah. because it's beautiful stores. Yeah, fully agree. Um, and let's quickly get this, um, let's say non-business related. Now nah, it is all business related, but not numbers related <laughs> stuff in. Um, and then let's talk about that. So cool. first thing first, yeah, we had product centric from the roots, right? Then we had this shift from product to retail centric. Um, all along the way, what they did really different was their general approach to marketing, right? I'm not a good test for this, but how long have you two known the brand? 10 like, years? 10 years. Maybe yeah. three, four, five years, maybe maximum. Have you ever seen a billboard? Never. No, because have no. you ever seen TV ads or no. any? Absolutely not. Nothing. And you know the classical route of um, beauty brands, advertising beauty brands. Yeah, just it's blast. exactly that, right? Yeah. So there is something that's called um, advertising sensitivity, right? There is. It comes from the price sensitivity. Price sensitivity means if I raise my prices, will that directly link to a lower demand? And if I uh, lower number prices, will this directly link to a higher demand? So that's the price sensitivity. But then there is also a concept of advertising sensitivity, which is the connection between dollars spent into advertising and um, actual demand. And in mm -hmm. cosmetics, this relation is one of the highest in any single uh, industry, right? Wow. So that's just the mo closest link. Why? Because there are so many brands, there is so frequent purchases, and it's a low involvement product usually, right? So it's like, yeah, I'm gonna need shampoo, I'm gonna need my moisturizing cream, I'm gonna need this and that. So. I'm not sure if everyone would agree here, especially the female I, listeners, but... No, I fully agree. <laughs> um, yeah, that's true. Um, but still, it's not... So for many people, it's not like on the absolute top of their list, right? It's not like right. um, this super high involvement products because yes, it might get expensive, but also it's 40 bucks, right? If you basically sink your 40 bucks, then you have sunk 40 bucks. It's not like... 
a thousand or something, right? So you can make mistakes. So this is why people can try, people switch brands, people basically try out. And this is why there is such a close connection between marketing, expenditure, and um, demand. But ESOP has taken a completely different route, right? So to this day, no celebrities, no models, no billboards, no TV advertising, but what they have done is going into experience marketing, right? So we have talked about how you first have a great experience when you buy it, but we have also talked about how you usually find out about this, which is you go to a nice restaurant, you have a great experience, there is an Aesop soap. You go to a nice hotel, you have um, a great experience, there is an Aesop soap. You watch a movie, you're not getting an advertising, but you see in succession, Schiff Roy using an Aesop soap as a product placement. So that's the kind of marketing they do really smartly and really actually offensively. Somehow not offensive. So now this is maybe um, the non-native speaker, not offensive in a way of, you know, being offensive, but aggressive. You know what I'm trying to say. Only aggressive. Only offensive. Like, exactly. Yeah. Um, and what they also kind of got is they got architects to use their products in renders. So, for example, when you get a nice yeah. bathroom, then you it's get huge. an Aesop soap in this render it's of an architect. It's always there. Um, yeah. So that's just an interesting like zigzag on the marketing approach in an industry where you have usually a completely different way of marketing. And I think the biggest sack, which is now huge, but hasn't been huge when it was introduced for them, was gender neutral products and marketing. So now it's different, right? We are getting more conscious about this. There is not only female and male products, but um, ESOP has always been like this, right? It has always been a brown bottle. It has always been about skin, hair, mouth, but it has never been about, hey, this is for black hair female. Hey, this is for blonde male. No, it has always been gender um, neutral. And I think this is something that has basically paid off in the recent years because mm. it's, um, yeah, again, a completely unique approach to um, dealing cosmetics. Yeah. Yeah. That's pretty like much how it. they call their marketing approach, non-marketing approach. That's basically <laughs> yeah. their strategy. Similar to Tesla, right? In a, in a funny way. Like only in the fact that relying on word of mouth and quality, certainly early on in, in the um, journey. But there, you would not recognize the, the, the marketing model. Um, yeah, I sure. think with Tesla, there is also a Musk PR effect. Yeah. Um, and that this is really, I, I more and more think that all the shenanigans he's doing, it's now becoming more and more evident. He's just trying to get like free PR for his product. And that's why I think this is not something that's replicable for other brands and products. But uh, what Aesop is doing might be. Yeah. Yeah. So bottom line, we have a company that was founded in 1987 
we have product focus, we have going into retail, and then we have unique approach to marketing. I was researching on this podcast and I was like, that, like, isn't there more? <laughs> like, come on, this company started, we had this revenue number, 2003, 3 million, right? Then mm-hmm. 2012, there were 28 million. But then Just, 2022, mm-hmm. they were at 537 million. So 537 million in revenue with like not a lot to find for me as the person researching business model and strategy, right? So I was like, where is this stuff, right? I was looking for podcasts. I was looking for interviews. I read some interviews. I didn't find a single podcast where there was an executive interviewed of of Aesop. Of Aesop. So mm-hmm. I was. it was kind of weird, so subtle, only these like strong but few differentiators um, but then I found one very interesting interview. Oh, here it comes. <laughs> Suzanne Santos, one of the first employees, over 30 years at the company. Wasn't she the first employee? Mm. Yeah, I think she was even the yeah, first yeah. employee. And she said, I think ESOP's success has been about the fact that we have said no to more things that we have said yes to. Amen. And that's like, <laughs> I was like, okay. I get it. That's, I don't need to research any longer because I was really desperately looking for what did this company do? Where did they take turns? What did they, was there many, uh, any like fuck ups or anything? Nothing. It was just kind of a boring story. And the only very interesting story is about these stores. And then I got it. Like, this is exactly why this company works. They weigh every decision everything is conscious another quote it's important that everything conveys the sentiment and emotion that we're trying to express and with this brand it feels like this is not empty words it feels like yes they are doing so few things and all of them are so tightly considered that it actually appeared to me again tom what is the most well-known uh, fable from Aesop? Oh, I mean, I only know one, and for me, it's the the tortoise and the hare. Um, exactly. Which I hope is an Aesop fable, otherwise it looked like an even it more is. of a mug than usual. But um, yeah, real. So the rabbit is so confident in winning that he stops during the race and falls asleep, but the turtle just continues very slowly without stopping and finally wins the race. So I was like, full circle like this is exactly what you are doing right 1987 kind of not even grinding so everything feels light but everything still feels very considerate and not a lot of twists and turns just very focused on the product very focused on the experience very focused on their principles and did you find any principles I only found principles I in one of their videos. Yeah, some so, uh, principles around um, design. Um, I think I've got a quote somewhere, but carry on uh, in the meantime. I found principles of business. You mean like authenticity and stuff or? Yeah. This, the, I mean, this, this is just a, a quote from um, the founder 
uh, on the talk.com that completely summarizes this nicely, I think. It says, know your own scripts, write your map and sweat it out. Rise above short-termism. Good decisions deliver joy and value over a far greater length of time. This this is baked in. Um, sorry, we'll come back to the yeah. principles piece, but... Um, you, when, when, whenever I'm talking, trying to explain strategy, good strategy to to someone, we talk about trade-offs. But I always talk about it's about what you do, and more importantly, what you don't invest in, which is what makes great strategy and being very intentional about it. And I, I don't think there's many organisations that live that and stick, choose that lane, and absolutely know to say no to a lot of things like ESOP. So, um, mm-hmm. yeah. Yeah, sorry, business principles. Did you have some friends? I didn't really find some. I just found one video where they kind of tried to market their workplace. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And they had this one line. So again, really, really weird video, but it hooks you. So there is a video that has just ambient shots mm. of stores, of offices. And in the end, it says something about we do things differently come work with our uh, with us our principles are integrity respect and intelligence and that's a 2 minute 30 video that's it so and here it feels like okay integrity respect intelligence putting intelligence into your values is an interesting move uh, but kind of it feels like they are the overthinkers in a good way that's <laughs> it isn't it you are paying for you're probably paying well in excess of you know what you probably need to for most of these products right but unapologetically uh, their ceo um he quote acknowledges that esop is not for everyone and instead focuses on catering to the customers who do appreciate not just the efficacy of their products but their whole ethos there is no way you would walk into a normal store and say 40 dollars is fine for us hand soap but if you appreciate that this company is going completely to cult-like levels when it comes to attention to detail quality experience you might just be willing to pay for that and if you are the kind of person who is then 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 great like um Mm. you don't have to buy this product but if you if you're into that message and that culture then yeah i want to i want to get back to what alan said because this is really small group of companies where this works right so this is not pure luxury right it's somewhere in between of luxury and very premium product but it's not like you buy this for an extraordinary price just to show off Mm -hmm. and there is no link between utility of this product and the price no it's basically you're paying more but you're also getting something that is very good quality and that's also how they communicate right you're not paying a show off you're not paying because you can it's more of yeah that's a good very good product that's natural ingredients that's paired with good science but this like that strategy to an extent to a business that is like 500 north of 500 uh, million um, also works just for a specific group of companies right so you can only be that big and have these price points when you have um let's say a product that 
that can hold that, right? So I can, even I will work, walk into a store and will buy a hand soap for 40 bucks. Basically, almost everybody can, could afford this, right? If they fall in love with the brand. It's not like you're yeah. buying a car for half a million where none of us have a shot or buy an Eames chair where the chair costs 10,000, right? It's basically a very expensive hand soap, which does not cross your budget, even if you buy it. Think of it like your $10 or 10 um, bucks, 10 euros chocolate bar. If yeah. it's an awesome chocolate bar, right? You buy it once. Um, so these kind of niche brands where you can be very premium, have very high um, margins, but still have a big enough um, target group because it is still kind of affordable. It gets unaffordable when you compare it with other products, but mm. just in general, it is kind of affordable. Really good point. I think the, the key here is the gross margin. Yeah. So this you can play with this only when you can have a product with a high enough gross margin where actually you can mark up your actual cost of a product by 10 times or more because that's where you have the space to do these things that seem unrational that seem crazy and to to a business hey let's hire architects let's use these super fancy materials in stores let's open a store even this in itself is a huge cost all of these things only work when you have enough gross margin and this means when you need to realize if you're an industry that has good margins or not because if you are in a low gross margin industry this approach may not work it's probably not gonna work yeah fully yeah. agree yeah that might segue us nicely into some of the financials alan yeah um but before that front did you have anything else in the strategy part no, no? Then maybe uh, I'll just add to, have you seen like uh, any um, stuff about the company's culture? So you talked about these principles and stuff. Mm -hmm. And to my mind came these principles. So I don't have like a list of principles, but I remember reading that they go to such level of details, even for their employees, that I'm just not in shock that the end result is such a crazy, crazy, well-designed product. You're for example, when you are, yes, so everyone who works at uh, uh, ESOP must use black moleskin notebooks with black pens. Uh, when you're in the office, your phone should be muted, so on a silent mode. Um, in the financial documents, which are usually done in PowerPoint or Excel, and usually have these generic, ugly looking colors, there's a very specific colors they use for their presentations and for their graphs and their ESOP colors. And not everyone is okay with that, but they're, the way they put it is like, if you're not okay with this, then you're probably not a good fit. So they, get to, they go to the, all these levels of details that is really like unbelievable. Mm. Yeah. You need, you must start your emails with dear. They have yeah, to end you need... with some pleasantry as well. Yes. <laughs> It sounds a little cultish, um, but I think that's kind of what you're buying into. Um, it is a cult. I mean, the product is a, a cult. Yeah, I think it's a good way of putting it as far as like the, the desire and the growth. It's been, yeah, very cultish, um, mm. excessive 
sort of attention to, to detail unnecessary probably but there's something that draws you in if, if you're the kind of person that, that that values that stuff so it's interesting you mentioned unnecessary because if you read um interviews with the founder dennis right um then he talks about a lot of copycats mm. coming up lately and his rationale for why they don't come even close to ESOP is because they do things, they copy the surface level stuff from ESOP, but they don't go into these details yeah. of how they train people, how their offices, so offices that no one who is buying products sees, how they treat notebooks, <laughs> like architects and so on. So all of these details come out in the end. Yeah. That's, that's his um, view of why this is necessary. Yes, I think as a as a designer who maybe wasn't familiar with ESOP going into this, you will almost certainly recognize the ESOP aesthetic because it is so pervasive now. You go to any, it doesn't have to be a high-end um, like cosmetics store, shelves upon shelves of typography-focused, minimalistic um, <laughs> bottles on shelves it has become pervasive and actually quite watered down um so if, if you yeah you might not be familiar with esop maybe hopefully you are now an hour in um but you've you've seen it it has become de rigueur. um but like you say i could go in and buy one of these these other copycats for a fiver or whatever nice packaging but yeah it doesn't doesn't have the elevated experience that, mm. that esop has uh, by the way uh part of my research for this episode was diving also on the avenue and the rabbit hole was neuroscience of branding and how why we love brands and that basically brands are part of our identity and what we're buying with certain brands and this is definitely true of Aesop is communicating who we are so by me having this hand soap in my guest's bathroom I'm communicating that I value design that I stand for quality and all the things that ESOP stands for, sustainability, local communities and so on. Just tells a story of who you are. Yeah. And um, that's why I think it costs 40 or 30 bucks, not because it just smells nice. Because there are other products that smell nice, but don't tell the same story. And the reason you're buying it is because you know that other people know that ESOP stands for these things and then you kind of buy association. This is extended to you. Yeah. And it, it, it sounds so superficial, doesn't it? Um, it, it? It's hard not to be a little apologetic about maybe being so uh, into this story and this um, yeah. this brand. But it hits, it hits buttons with people. It really does. And this isn't the only brand we've talked about that does this exceptionally well, but I think Aesop are just on another level. Mm. No, I think Eamshire has a, different, has a similar um, dynamic there. Yeah. Just a different price point. But actually, it's worse business. So Eames Chair is a worse business than Aesop. <laughs> Let's dive into this. So I think we should start with just uh, the ownership of the company because it recently changed hands. So first of all, the company was obviously owned and by a founder since 1987 to 2012. So it was owned by Dennis, and then in 2012, it sold 65% to Brazilian 
private equity slash cosmetic brand corporate entity called Natura and Company. So in 2012, uh, you said it earlier, France, ASUP had 28 million in revenue and they sold 65% of the company for roughly 80, uh, sorry, 70 million US dollars. Uh, by the way, for those who don't who have never heard of Natura and Company, you have probably heard of the Body Shop. It's like a mono brand store in many big cities across uh, across the world. Founded in Brighton. Really? Yep. Really? So they bought it. Oh, a it's another acquisition. Blue plaque up, and the, you know, ironically, the Aesop store that I'm talking about is at the end of the road where Body Shop was founded, where the first Body Shop store was. <laughs> Interesting. When was the Brighton store opened? Uh, I'm not 100% sure. I think pr it was definitely pre-pandemic, maybe 2017, 2018. Right. Well, maybe the location had something to do with the fact that it was the same owner. Wow. You know? Good, yeah. I mean, that body shop isn't there anymore. There's just a blue plaque to right. say that the okay. original store was there. And um, oh, There's a plaque. Nice. Yeah. So Natura and the company owns Avon, the body shop, obviously Natura, and until recently ESA. And uh, so in 2012, as I said before, they bought 65% of the company for 70 million. And then things went so well that they very smartly decided to buy the whole thing in 2016. Uh, it was undisclosed how much that exactly was, but since 2016, it was owned completely by Natura. But this year in 2023, L'Oreal, so the French behemoth in this space, uh, bought Aesop for a whopping $2.5 billion. And so mm, the joke this is, is that the you largest. Could buy, the joke is that you could buy um, five bottles of Aesop hand soap for the same price. <laughs> Where did you read this joke? Oh, it was just a bunch of hilariousness uh, okay. going around Twitter at the time of the acquisition. Mm. <laughs> <laughs> so, this is the biggest acquisition that L'Oreal has ever made. And we'll talk about the reasons in a bit. And this is actually the biggest acquisition of Australian-born luxury business. So, um, yeah. One thing that's also interesting about the price here is the valuation. So $2.5 billion. So how do companies come up with the price, how much they're willing to pay for a company? So in 2022, ESOP has made 500 and let's say 40 million in revenue. So this means that L'Oreal has paid four times the revenue. So this is the multiple. Or in other words, they paid 22 times in EBITDA. And EBITDA is actually, it stands for earnings before interest, taxes, depreciation, and amortization. And if you forgot what I just said, that's totally fine. It's just, it's just put simply, it's the profit of a company before we take off taxes and other things we could use to manipulate the, the profit. So their EBITDA was roughly 100 and something uh, million dollars last year. And so the company paid 22 times the EBITDA, which is a lot. It's a huge multiple, but uh, because for other industries, it's much less usually. So that's my next part of the research was figuring out what is the usual multiple of buying cosmetics or beauty brand. And actually it is pretty high. So it's 15 to 20 times EBITDA is usually what companies favor for, for premium brands in this, in this industry. And just to put this in context, that's also a usual multiple of companies buying SaaS companies. So software as a service. 
and software as a service these days as is being seen as the best business you can be in you have recurring revenue you have huge gross margins so if you if your industry is able to demand the same multiple in the, in the acquisitions so uh, roughly 15 to 20 times the EBITDA that that speaks how good of a business this is and I'll get to this right now so we're going to play a short game of which product has higher gross margin? <laughs> Again, gross margin is how profitable a product is. So this is not the profitability of the company. It's just when I sell the product, how much it costs me to create and sell this product, basically. Okay. Okay. And we're going to use three products to compare these two. So we're going to start with a software as a service company called Spotify. Maybe you've heard of it. No, I'm just joking. Niche cult brand. No idea. <laughs> so... Which company has higher gross margin, Aesop or Spotify? I know Spotify do a great job of uh, not paying artists terribly well, so uh, <laughs> could be quite high. Um, I'm going to say Spotify. Spotify, YouTube, your friends. Following Tom. Actually, Spotify is really awful when it comes to software as a service and gross margins. It's only 25% keeping up my hot streak of um, doing terribly at this game. <laughs> <laughs> okay, then let's go to uh, very well-priced hardware. Have you already mentioned uh, the gross uh, margin of ESO? No, on purpose. <sighs> I first want to just reveal the gross margins of other products. So iPhone, ESOP or iPhone, which one has a better gross margin? And let me tell you, iPhone has much better gross margin than Spotify. I'll let Franz go first on this one. <laughs> <laughs> Honestly, I would have said um, ESOP, but now given the order of the game, I say I iPhone. <laughs> yeah, I'm also thinking about the game theory rather than uh, the actual answer. But I, I'm going to be I'm going to go with ESOP because I'm just doing mm -hmm. some quick math and I. I know that there's still a lot of hardware cost and stuff in uh, Apple. So. Mm -hmm. so you're both right. Franz, you're right about how I usually frame this because I first say uh, <laughs> you go with a lower and then with a higher. But actually, Tom is actually right because ESOP has a higher cross margin. It's only been about four episodes since I got one of these right. That's great. <laughs> Thanks. Uh, so iPhone has a 44% cross margin. So let's move on to something that's very close in gross margin okay Ooh. so this is now the closest so it doesn't really matter if you think it's higher or lower but let's still play the game so adobe our beloved adobe, Ooh, beloved adobe. higher or lower gross margin than ESOP? I, I could really throw some shade on adobe with this one i'm not going to but um <laughs> i'm gonna say adobe not that Adobe would give a shit. <laughs> they don't care. <laughs> they might care about Francis' answer. Yeah, Adobe. Adobe? Actually, it's Aesop. So Aesop has 90, 90% gross margin. What? Wow. 90. For those of you who are unsure why I'm so amazed, is because I've never seen a product with 90% gross margin. I looked up, I, I was really tried hard to find something that comes close. I mean, obviously you have certain like insurance products or maybe financial products, but even SaaS 
good SaaS product, software as a service product, is between 60 and 80%. And luxury is, is usually 60-ish, right? Yeah, you remember Sonos? I think Sonos is like 45 or something, 45%. Uh, so electronics is around about here, but cosmetics is around 80 to 90% cross margin. Wow. No wonder they can afford all these fancy water baskets. <laughs> exactly, Tom. Water baskets are the key, those fancy ones. But that also explains why they have the money to invest in certain things. It's like a bit of a chicken and egg because like, is the fact that we invest in this expensive experience and retail stores allows us to charge the premium price or because we have a premium price, we are able to invest in those things. And in this case, I think they have the best of both worlds because first they're in the business where even cheaper products have really nice uh, gross margins. But because they are a, a premium player in this space, they have even better economics mm. than other companies do. And that's part of the reason why L'Oreal is acquiring this yeah. unbelievable, truly unbelievable company, not just from design perspective, but from the business perspective as well. I, so, sorry, Tom, go on. No, go on, mate. I mean, you just said that's part of a reason why L'Oreal is acquiring this, right? So another thing that for me, and I don't know if you were going to mention it, but wh why are you paying such a big price? Yes, it's great margin. Mm -hmm. But on the other hand, what was super surprising to me is that growth potential that this company still has. Yes, I want to go there. So on the one hand, only really going into e-commerce with the pandemic, if I understood correctly, right? So they did go fully into retail. They're not selling only in their brand stores, but they're still selling department stores. Um, they have only recently really invested into the e-commerce. And what they have really only recently done was entering China, right? Only 2022, Correct. they entered China. And that was for the reason that until 2019, it required imported cosmetic to be tested on animals, right? So this regulation changed and that's before there was a barrier for, of entry for ESOP, but then it still took them three years to actually enter uh, China. And you know how, I mean, I didn't know, but I've now learned that China is a huge market for especially luxury mm. cosmetics, right? So now, given that you have a brand that is not, it's not terribly huge, right? 537 million is not like huge, huge, but mm -hmm. it has healthy revenues that were growing higher than the average of this market, has great gross margin and has just entered China. Yep. Where you as the buyer, L'Oreal, have a very, very strong footprint already. And it fits nicely into their product line because they don't have such a um, brand yet. I think the closest Aesop feels to is Kiehl's. Mm -hmm. And there is some fear of cannibalization here. But I think what you brought up front is the main reason they're buying it. It's like still so much potential left. And they were very open about it. Like, so if you read any press releases during the acquisition, it always, you can just command F for China. Yeah. It's always there. It's always it's China and the, retail. 
We own China two things, it's China and retail. And this is what we're going to do with this brand. It's a marriage of these two things. <laughs> uh, not just retail, to give you... Travel retail, sorry. Travel retail. China and travel retail. That's the two keywords. And let me give you some numbers of, on the growth because it's impressive. So from 2003, so from 1987 to 2003, company grew from zero to three million. That's not, not a lot, you know, we can all agree on this. But from 2003 to 2012, the company grew to 28 million, which is 25% yearly growth. Which on any given year, it's not a lot. But if you do this for, in this case, nine years, you see the big difference. But now what happens if you extend this 25% yearly growth from 2012 to 2022? And actually you add even a little bit higher growth because from 2012 to 2022, this 20 to 30 year old company grew 35% year uh, percent year over year. Wow. That is huge. It's very hard to find these like companies that are this old growing this fast for so long. Mm. You can have a year or two where you, there's a huge bump, but only the best brands and companies endure huge growth for such a long periods of times. Even the best startups, they usually have certain years when they're doubling in the beginning there's double double triple triple maybe kind of a, a as a rule of thumb for good companies but after that you know it starts tempering at like 20 30 percent but doing this for 20 30 years it's crazy it's literally crazy so yeah why would any, anyone sell a company like this are you gonna tell us that i will <laughs> <laughs> that's the crazy thing right you have so, I, I can I tell why I wouldn't sell it, and you tell us why. Yeah, yeah. I mean, yes, yeah. Think about Natura. So Natura, nobody knows this company, maybe, but you have um, other really well-known brands, right? You have the Body Shop, you have Avon, you have then this Aesop brand, which is not the biggest business, but it has the highest profit margins. None of the other companies that they, none of the other brands that they own, Natura, has a similar profit margin. No. On top of this, this brand, Aesop, is the only brand of your big ones that actually grows. So Body mm -hmm. Shop, for example, declined by 15 to 20%. Avon declined by 8 to 10% year over year. So why do you sell the company that makes you the money while the other companies they might still make money but they are actually on the downward trend so i was really puzzled about this and yeah some time in my research went into this yeah because like the thing my instinct is actually let's keep Aesop and let's rather shed some other brands but it's easy to say this in, in, in my position without having the knowledge of all the things. But I mean, so this is a company. So Natura & Co. is a company that had recently huge losses and they have a lot of debt on their books, 1.5 billion in debt. And you need to service this, this debt. In other words, you need to pay off this debt somehow. And that was their sacrifice. Selling Aesop was the way they're going to try to pay off the debt and restructure, which is a fancy way of saying we're going to find a better business model for our brand. So maybe we'll buy some new brands and so on. Another path they could have taken is what 
I think Franz has alluded to, which is like, let's keep ESOP and let's try this and grow this so, so that we can refinance our debt through ESOP. But we don't know all the details. It could be that, you know, they had a lot of pressure by banks, by their creditors, that they need to start paying off the, the debt. Mm. So that was essentially it. It was the bad performance of other assets in their portfolio that led them to sell off the crown jewel of their portfolio, for sure. I agree. And I think what they also realized is that they do not have the power to, let's say, utilize the potential. Mm. So I think now they were able to sell it with a huge premium because they knew that if there was a buyer who had a good network in China, who had good um, roots in retail where the company isn't currently strong, um, they would be able to sell it for a huge premium. But if they kept it, they wouldn't be able to um, realize this mm -hmm. whole potential, right? Because Natura is a Latin American brand. They don't really have the footprint in, in Asia. So I think that's also part of this um, logic that you rather cash out now that you have just entered the market in China, that you've just uh, overcome all these regulations that still need to be uh, like all these hoops that sh still need to be jumped through in order to enter a market. Now there is this huge potential that you can either fully invest in, take your own money and invest in to actually capitalize on this, or you maybe don't have this money to actually really ro roll out and grow in such a huge market as China and then sell it to somebody who has the potential and is willing to, uh, to pay this huge premium because they have this um, this infrastructure and this network already in place. Mm. Ready to go into threats and opportunities? Definitely. Sure thing. Yeah. You can start right away. I mean, the biggest opportunity we just talked about, China. <laughs> um, the biggest, I mean, at the same time, I think one of the biggest opportunities for them is this e-commerce which they recently started and i think this combination of uh, retail plus e-commerce means that they can essentially expand over just those retail locations that they have so even if you're a traveler and you experience esop experience in retail you can still like order back home hopefully they get rid of the 10 dollar shipping uh, so france can also buy some soap soon i'll buy it in a store <laughs> Another big opportunity, I think, is also the economic times we're in. Uh, so one of the recent DMB weekly emails that we sent out, it's about the lipstick effect. Have you heard of the lipstick effect, Tom? I read your newsletter about it. Oh, okay. I learned all about That's it. Fine. Fascinating. <laughs> Definitely read that one if you haven't. The, the idea is that lipstick, but also broadly, more broadly like cosmetics, is very sticky product that sells well even during the economic downturn because it's one thing that you, you cut out on some other let's say luxury spending, or let's say you don't eat in restaurants anymore, you don't buy that expensive. You cancel the holiday, clothes. but you, exactly. you buy a nice soap. You still, not, I'm not there yet with the soap, but you need to buy your makeup and stuff. Mm. But this extends towards the affordable luxury as well. So you cut yeah. out a more expensive luxury, but you maybe buy something else that, you know, like, hey, I want to treat myself. And here's where soap and, like affordable 
cosmetics, no, affordable luxury cosmetics come in. Well, let's just call them luxury cosmetics come in. So I think that's also their opportunity in these times where there is a slight economic downturn at the moment. We still don't know which way exactly it's going to shape, but this is also an opportunity for, for ESOP. Yeah, nice. Um, is it, shall I get, jump in here with some thoughts on that? Sure. So I was going to start with threats, actually. Um, I go ahead. Yeah, I forgot. Uh, sorry. Did you want? Uh, uh, no, no. I mean, I, I already mentioned mine, which is cannibalization of kills. Right. I think that's a big threat to them. And the second threat, uh, the biggest one, is just like for a product that relies so heavily on brand. I'm always just a bit nervous about acquisitions if they try to touch any part of that brand that's going to affect the brand image. What if L'Oreal tells them, hey, let's actually not do own stores anymore and you actually replace you next to our own uh, products in all these great department stores that we are already in. It could work well. It could also backfire. So that's a threat and an opportunity at the same time. Yeah, if the, that was the threat I was going to oh, try sorry. and get in there, excuse me. Um, <laughs> but no, for me, as soon as I saw the L'Oreal acquisition, I was like, that that's, feels very high risk. L'Oreal is not a company that, on the surface at least, um, appears to prioritize the virtues that ADSOP talks so much about with sustainability um, in particular. Uh, quality and you know quality brand but not on the same level so for me i wondered if people who are real um esop stands would would step away from the the mm. would not have the same feeling about about the organization knowing that it's owned by you know one of the biggest conglomerates in the world uh in this industry so that felt like a threat not sure based on what you've been talking about on growth numbers and that's played out so far when was the acquisition was it last year or the year before no this year yeah, and this year. these this numbers year. wow yeah so these numbers still don't account yeah, for account the growth for of this it, year they? i thought it was mm. last year um so that that felt like a threat and you've already touched on the fact if they start watering down that um that culture in some way definitely if you start seeing it in the high street in in some aspects it's really gonna um but i would hope that people they're not stupid enough <laughs> to do something like that because we all understand how critical that is um opportunity wise i think getting rid of uh, shipping costs could open up a big uh, big market right <laughs> that still puzzles me that ten dollar um shipping piece but no i think we've already touched on the the opportunity like china is enormous and thinking about that acquisition um it's really interesting to think that they completely understood natura the, the potential there but couldn't take it there themselves it must have been such an easy sell to uh, to someone like l'oreal with the the scope and the footprint and everything to be like take our baby and really make it fly so um yeah i can't think right now of any other big opportunities outside of that and again i hope they continue to roll out stores in that same that mm, same style fashion. as they move probably quite aggressively across um that territory yeah, friends. Over to you. Um, can't really add anything. Just wanna like new um, opportunities or threats, but I just wanna like share my thoughts on this acquisition. I honestly think that this is rather going to turn out well than bad. 
So point A is nobody knew this was owned by Natura, mm. I guess. So Aesop was like, some people even thought it was French brand, right? You just showed the bottle, right? There is the English description and there's the French description. So they were very precise about a lot of things of the business, but they were never, ever really precise about their origin, right? So it wasn't like, hey, we are this Australian brand. Um, They're just like, hey, we are a quality brand that focuses on details, design, experience. So I think this, and many people are just not interested in who buys whom. Um, yes, it's a business news. Some people will read it. Most people will ignore it. Nobody will be ever asking the question when they enter an ESOP store, who owns this company? So I think for consumers, that's very peripheral knowledge. Um, then second thing is, I think especially these cosmetics conglomerates or and let's say also high-end conglomerates, they know very well how to manage um, diverse brand. brand portfolios. So just have a look at LVMH or Unilever, like you don't, you don't know what's all Unilever, right? Until you just mm. turn around the box. I guess they won't even write L'Oreal on the on the um, on any of the boxes, right? So um, here, I think they know how to how to manage that. Mm. And finally, I think this retail network that L'Oreal has in place is just a huge upside for them. And lastly, I think I read that already now the whole headquarters is located in Melbourne, right? So I assume they're not going to be centralized into L'Oreal, but they are keeping also this. Um, if they're yeah, if they're doing this, and I assume that they are doing this, um, I think this merger or this acquisition will actually only have upsides. So is this your biggest buy until now? So you know how we do buy, sell, hold in the end? Yeah. Obviously, again, this is not financial or investment advice. It's just for in entertainment purposes. I would be buying yeah. the heck out of, out of um, ESOP, but I guess can't really do that. You'd be buying into L'Oreal. <laughs> yeah, I agree. Yeah. Like Eames was my first buy. Uh, Herman Miller was my first buy in the last episode. Uh, just for the fun of it, I don't think it's that big of a like growth potential. I don't think that it's that big of a deal, but for ESOP, I think it is. Yep, I would sell my house and put it all in ASAP. This is <laughs> the best one we covered in the teardowns for sure until now. In terms of the potential and like just the even the current numbers, it's yeah. not like it's not not making money and it might be profitable in the future, but it's already great design and business, and it has a lot of potential to be even bigger. Yeah, yeah. This is a great business already. They did not need to sell to survive. It's like take our baby don't mess with it just throw your resources at it and it's going to get even bigger um yeah what what a, what a fascinating business and brand yeah i'm so happy we did this one yeah yeah me too now we because had to do a lot of convincing the yeah you really, they really had to convince me to actually do this because i was like come on that's cosmetics uh, i'm not interested i don't know the brand but now i'm like that was nice. Really good yeah. to learn about it. And I want to go into an ESOP store. Oh. Get my hands washed. How, how long did it take to get to Vienna from Salzburg? 
Ah, <laughs> uh, not terribly long, like two and a half hours by train. Okay. As long as we can get you a ticket for under a tenner, let's send our friends out to Vienna. And actually, <laughs> my visit to Vienna is long overdue. There you uh, go. So having been lived there, having lived there for 12 years, I haven't been there in a while. Should go back, mm. meet some friends, Sounds wash my hands. Good idea. You can all go <laughs> there. <laughs> you can all meet go some friends, hang wash out. my hands. The next topic in the, the, the next theme of my visit in Vienna. <laughs> <laughs> and we've, we've talked about the store experience being so interesting. I'd, I'd love to hear from listeners what their in-store experience if they've been has has been like. Has it has it been the same as ours? Um, yeah. What is it about? Aesop and is there any all... comparable? Yeah. I would be. I would love to hear about. Have you also had other experience that you're like, yep, that is exceptionally good. Yeah, worth. It's funny for. because we we wanted to do a hospitality based episode and this one turned out to be hospitality yeah the retail store yeah it's like a spa the retail yeah. store isn't it? it really is like yeah it's a really good way of putting it it feels like hospitality and you know there's that quote we talked about earlier about being a great host that's what these stores are trying to yep. trying to yep. uh make it feel like cool i think that's that's all right yeah and Tom, anything else on your list Oh, I think this is one where we could just talk for hours about design and stuff, but we will let, hopefully we've whetted enough appetites to go and dive deep into the design side of things because there's a big mm. well of fascinating uh, design decisions and high quality design to, to salivate over. So um, you're welcome. Pun intended, big well. <laughs> the big well, yeah. <laughs> The, the big the big water basket which is now what I'm going to call sinks from now on so water basket thank you yeah, that's going to be the name of the episode I love as that well. like German logic you cannot be uh, <laughs> you cannot we've got stupid names for things so thanks for bearing with us through all the water baskets and the story I will come up with the next one in a couple of weeks and if you enjoyed this episode you also probably enjoy our mini MBA which is a really cool free email course where for seven days you receive seven emails each of them teaching you a business concept relevant for designers so to sign up head over to d.mba slash mini minus mba so that's d.mba slash mini minus mba thanks everyone and see you in the next one bye 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 bye